Section 1 of Neoplatonism. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Neoplatonism by Charles Big. Chapter 1 Stoicism. In this little volume, it is proposed to run over the history of the later Platonism, a large and intricate subject. But, narrow as are our limits, it is not possible to enter fairly upon the task without a brief review of stoicism this school of thought the porch as it is often called from the painted porch at athens where its first professors lectured was founded in the third century before christ by zeno cleanthes and chrysippus and was predominant in rome from the time of nero to that of marcus aurelius it affected platonism partly by direct influence but still more by way of reaction in the days of epictetus under the flavian emperors the only schools that could be regarded as serious rivals of stoicism in the capital were the academics and the epicureans peripatetics the disciples of aristotle were he tells us few and faint-hearted plato himself was hardly read at all the epicureans were atomists in science and utilitarians in morals they taught that the world was made by the fortuitous aggregation of infinitesimally small particles of matter and they admitted no standard of right or wrong but pleasure they did not deny the existence of gods but they held that the gods were made in exactly the same way as everything else and took no part whatever in the government of the world they sat around their nectar and lived a careless life hence the epicureans were commonly regarded as atheists the academics degenerate representatives of the academy of plato were universal doubters they had learned from plato himself to distrust the senses and from the conflict of opinions to distrust reason their maxim was suspend thy judgment or as pliny expresses it only one thing is certain that nothing is certain epicureanism is not necessarily coarse men may be utilitarians without being swine in spite of horace but it is necessarily selfish and relative even of its modern social form the form given to it by mr j s mill this is true men differ in their ideas of what is agreeable and each is supreme judge in his own case hence though the pursuit of pleasure may establish a coterie it cannot build a society or organize a state it is at this point that epictetus attacks epicurus he charges him with denying the great moral truth of the natural brotherhood of man with man but now he proceeds see what happens these audacious thinkers who would destroy the obvious and wholesome facts of human nature are compelled by that very nature to assert the very facts which they deny what does epicurus say do not be mocked good people there is no natural brotherhood between one reasonable being and another believe me those who tell you this are deluding you well but what does it matter to you let us be deluded will you be any the worse off if the rest of the world believes that there is a natural brotherhood and that they ought zealously to cherish this faith nay it will be far better and safer for you good sir why trouble your head about us why lay awake for our sake why light your lamp and get up early and write books lest we should be deluded into thinking that the gods care for men or lest we should imagine that the good is something else and not pleasure if that be so go to bed and sleep live like the worm whose equal you make yourself eat drink and snore why should you care what others think about these things for what bond is there between us and you epicurus takes pains to make people follow pleasure 
surely says epictetus it is nature herself who thus convicts him out of his own mouth with the same weapon the stoic smites the apostles of doubt if i were the slave of an academic i would plague him finely though i were to be flogged for it every day of my life bring me oil boy he would say for the bath i would take fish sauce and pour it over him what is this he would cry by my fortune i would answer my senses tell me that it is oil or again boy give me my barley water i would bring him a basin full of brine did i not call for barley water yes sir this is barley water is not this brine sirrah why not barley water take it and smell it cries he in a fury take it and taste it and what sir is the good of that if our senses deceive us oh if i had three or four fellow-slaves of the same mind as myself i would make him hang himself or recant it is the same argument that coxcombs urged with a grin against the idealist barclay and no doubt a man may question the existence of an objective cause of sensation without denying the reality of the sensations themselves but these lively passages show very clearly the position taken up by stoicism against its two most formidable opponents the stoic agreed with the epicurean that sense and reflection upon the data of sense are the two sources of all that we can be said to know as against the academic he insisted that both can be trusted if we have learned to use them aright as against the epicurean he maintained that reflection on the order of nature teaches us that there is a god that reflection on the mind of man teaches us that it contains a faculty the reason or conscience which ought to bear rule that reflection on life shows that we are social beings owing certain duties to one another the sum of these reflections is what the stoic meant by nature when he enunciated his great maxim live according to nature he was not thinking of the state of nature of the french philosophe still less of the animal instincts which we sometimes call natural by nature he intended that which is best in man follow nature means take reason for thy guide the roman stoics cared little for theory differing in this probably from their brethren in greece epictetus impressed upon his disciples hardly anything beyond the necessity of strict moral discipline logic was useful in the last stage to clear the mind of kant to correct false impressions and read correctly the lesson taught by experience yet even for this limited purpose its usefulness was dubious simple men he thought were better without intellectual accomplishments which sometimes puzzled them and sometimes puffed them up epictetus is particularly emphatic in his disparagement of book learning it is in the bath in bed above all in fever and sickness that a man shows whether he is a philosopher or not he has no patience with the man who complains that he has no time to read books are only a means to tranquillity and where is the tranquillity if one is to fret and fume every time he is called away from his books still less can he tolerate the man who boasts that he knows his chrysippus do you not know that the whole volume is worth but half a crown and he who can explain it all is worth no more than the volume in the same spirit marcus writes pitch away your books and be no more distracted look within so too musonius rufus those who are to be true philosophers he says do not need many words nor should young men attempt to learn this welter of theorems on which the sophist plumes himself in truth this kind of thing is enough to wear a man's life out what is most necessary and useful a farmer can learn for after all he is not always at work these last words remind us of tyndale's saying that 
if god spared his life he would cause a boy that driveth the plough to know more of the scriptures than great doctors erasmus again in the preface to his paraphrases spoke in a similar strain of the bible and its contents i long that the husbandman should sing portions of them to himself as he follows the plough that the weaver should hum them to the tune of his shuttle that the voyager should beguile with these stories the tedium of his journey stoic humanist and reformer were all anxious to simplify dogma the resemblance between tyndale and the roman stoic is very close both thought that the necessary beliefs are few and attainable by the simplest man without any help from instruction or authority it may be that the roman stoics did not wholly believe their own creed and this latitudinarianism enables them to smooth off many of its angles and use language which in their mouths could have no real meaning nevertheless the creed is there though hundreds have read epictetus and marcus without perceiving it the stoic theory of knowledge was very similar to that of locke what we know is firstly a constant stream of sensations which is poured into us from without secondly those general conceptions which we form from sensations such as a man a cow thirdly propositions or judgments which the mind infers from these conceptions sensations are the whole raw material of thought there is nothing in the mind which does not come into it through the inlet of the senses all the mind contributes is the power of remembering grouping distinguishing the mind they said is like a sheet of paper that works sense writes letters upon it and it shakes these letters together into syllables words and sentences like the stomach it receives food and digests it but in the stoic view contributes nothing of its own nevertheless the stoic again like locke was a realist he did not doubt the truth of his senses but believed that it is the actual receiving of ideas from without that gives us notice of the existence of other things and makes us know that something doth exist at that time without us which causes that idea in us though perhaps we neither know nor consider how it does it but he carried his principle further than locke and maintained that the objects of which we have cognizance by sense are the only real existences that nothing can be said to be unless it is apparent to sense two great questions of ancient and indeed of all philosophy are what is that which is and what is that faculty criterion by which we know that it is here accordingly the platonist joined issue with the stoic the platonist insisted that sense knows nothing but sensations and can tell us nothing whatever about the object that produces the sensations just as the sight of the bright picture on the screen tells us nothing about the magic lantern behind the screen it is most wonderful says plotinus that the stoics who prove everything by sense should assert that that is which sense has no power to grasp in fact the stoic realism is untenable unless we are justified on the ground of mere experience in asserting that everything must have a cause according to the platonist the word must introduces a law not of matter but of mind experience cannot guarantee a universal we are here on the great dividing line of thought where the two main schools part company the stoic compared the mind to a sheet of paper that works but did not accurately explain how it works whether it does or does not bring something of its own to the work upon this all turns still more vehemently did the platonist object to the stoic tenet that the cause of sensation is that which really and therefore that which alone exists they put in the forefront says plotinus again that which has but a hypothetical existence not the non-existent 
as if it were the real and true existence and put the last first the reason is that sense is their guide and they rely upon it for the foundation of their principles and everything else according to the platonist the marks of true existence are eternity and unchangeableness but the object of sense is forever shifting as you put out your finger to touch it it has become something else hence the one thing that exists and can be known is mind all else exists only in so far as it participates in the true life of thought it can be known only in so far as it is knowable that is to say in so far as it is ordered and prepared for our knowledge by the indwelling mind in itself it is neither being nor not being but something that hovers between the two it is shapeless and formless infinite without qualities of any kind we know that it exists in a sense but only by our bastard reasoning it must be there but we know nothing about it thus to the platonist the object of knowledge is mind to the stoic it is matter the stoic expressed mind in terms of matter the platonist almost but not altogether expressed matter in terms of mind spinoza regarded thought and extension as different modes of one substance but the stoic was an absolute materialist whatever acts or is acted upon he said is a body both theism and deism are excluded by this theory of being accordingly the stoic was a pantheist god the absolute being is himself material he is ether the finest air or spirit that is breath but still has extension and shape and is tangible his shape is the sphere the perfect shape the stoics distinguished in him an active and a passive force and the manifestation of force natura naturans and natura naturata but both were material out of god at fixed intervals all things are evolved into him when the cycle is accomplished all things are absorbed by a great conflagration he is immanent in the world and is to the world what the soul is to the body mens agitat molem et magno se corpore misket the mode of creation or evolution was explained by the logoi or words which are a modification of the platonic idea the idea was at first conceived as a pattern or shape which the creator impressed upon matter as a seal upon wax the word is a force or principle of life a sort of seed hence the spermatic word which fructifies matter and moulds it from within god himself is the word of words the sum total of all vital forces this mode of expression was afterwards adopted by all platonists though the heathen writers use it only in a physical sense in philo and christian literature and in a few non-christian writers like hermes trismegistus who show distinct traces of christian influence the word is used as a divine title in a sense very unlike its stoic meaning to the stoic in fact god was natural law and his other name was destiny thus we read in the famous hymn of cleanthes lead me o zeus and thou too o destiny whithersoever ye have appointed for me to go for i will follow without hesitation and if i refuse i shall become evil but i shall follow all the same man is himself a part of the great world force carried along in its all-embracing sweep like a water beetle in a torrent he may struggle or he may let himself go but the result is the same except that in the latter case he embraces his doom and so is at peace the stoics often use personal language of god he is father king our escort in life he cares for his martyr and servant epictetus sings the praises of god for what else can i do a lame old man if i were a nightingale i would play the part of a nightingale if a swan that of a swan 
but now i am a reasonable being i must sing praises to god but all this is to be understood in the sense of cleanthes such language like much that we read at the present day on the adoration of nature merely testifies to the impossibility of religion or indeed of morality without emotion but emotion is personal and we may say of epictetus what epictetus said of the skeptics that his own words proclaim the truth which his theory denies plotinus said of the stoics that they only brought god in in order to be in the fashion they did not really want him when justin martyr set out on the quest after truth he applied himself first to a stoic but says he when i found i could learn nothing from him about god for he knew nothing himself and maintained that this doctrine was unnecessary i quitted him and went to another the religious language of the stoics is deceptive again in another way because by god they often mean the god within the intelligence which is to every man as a demon or guardian angel indeed they made no real difference between god and the soul the soul was a fragment a bit broken off god a piece of the extended and divisible deity such a part would be the same in kind as any other part and hence the stoic maintained that the wise man was in no way inferior to zeus dion they said does as much for god as god for dion thus worship becomes egotism like god himself the soul of man in the opinion of the stoics was material some called it an exhalation of the blood they could hardly hold that it was in any true sense immortal one of the signs of the times was the craving for a future life but the pantheist could not satisfy it indeed the later stoics are more skeptical than their forerunners cleanthes held that all souls lived on till the cyclic conflagration when they would be absorbed into the divine substance the heraclitian fire chrysippus confined this limited immortality to the souls of the wise but epictetus passes the subject over without a word man dies the pitcher that went so often to the well is broken aurelius doubts but does not actually deny at one time he speaks of the soul as absorbed at death into the seminal word the world's spirit at another he calls death perhaps an extinction perhaps a change of abode it is obvious that in such a system there is no place for aspiration or for humility another way of expressing the same defect is to say that stoicism leaves no room for revelation locke too felt this difficulty he was no pantheist but his sensational principles leave the human reason no other office than that of verifying the credentials of the divine message god's mind is different from our mind if we are sure that he has spoken we must accept the utterance as a mystery though it has no vital relation to the painful inductions of experience but the pantheist made man's mind a homogeneous sample of god's mind there could be no mystery at all this to the platonist was the great offence of stoicism the disputed question whether stoicism is to be called a religion depends therefore on the prior question whether there can be a religion without worship pantheism cannot be hedonic because it holds the stern belief in a present god it cannot be altruistic because its god is within hence this system which seems to attain to an absolute unity no sooner touches morality than it splits into two god is the world but practically the world is against god because god is also the eye and the world is against the eye hence stoicism issued in defiance of the world or as they often called it the flesh we may discern in it the first western philosophy of suffering for its bent was clearly decided by that purpose man must find happiness so the argument runs 
if so happiness must be absolutely in his own power but pleasure he cannot command pain he cannot avoid therefore he must renounce pleasure and bear pain without wincing externals are neither good nor evil happiness and misery depend entirely on our own will we can think this if we choose and if we think so it is so it is just here that buddhism joins hands with stoicism one regards the world as real the other as unreal but both are pantheistic and both are systems of resistance whosoever said buddha shall adhere unweariedly to this law and discipline he shall cross the ocean of life and make an end of sorrow and again rise up sit up what advantage is there in your sleeping to men ailing pierced by the darts of sorrow what sleep indeed can there be sloth is defilement to be ever heedless is defilement by earnestness and wisdom root out your darts of sorrow rice david's buddhism pages 79 on 132 the resistance to pain implies the avoidance of pleasure which inevitably and most inevitably in its highest form of love leads to pain this policy of defiance can only be carried out by withdrawing into the citadel of self hence both systems are strongly individualistic be lights unto yourselves says buddha look within says the stoic both were pantheists and pantheism seems to destroy individuality yet both issue in extreme self-assertion both refused to bear the burden of life and life will not thus be flouted but the buddhist accepted the punishment of his mistake with the amiable melancholy of the oriental while the stoic fought against it with the defiant self-reliance of the european the difference is seen most clearly in the patience with which the buddhist waited for a nirvana to be attained only after many lives the stoic was always prepared to make his own nirvana with his own knife the door is always open says epictetus again and again one of the worst features of stoicism is not so much suicide in itself as the theatrical effects with which the last great act of defiance was deliberately surrounded the stoics had no grace but they taught the manly virtues of self-reliance fortitude justice purity truth and in a way renunciation with splendid emphasis but the rift in their system makes itself felt at every turn they teach said plutarch that man should live according to nature yet all that we mean in ordinary speech by nature all the play of our material and social environment they rank among things indifferent and if these external circumstances which in themselves are of no import turn against a man he is justified in killing himself surely nature is not indifferent but stupid if she places thinking beings in a scene that can in no way contribute to their felicity and may lead to their self-destruction again evil in the stoic theory is according to nature if there were no evil there would be no good both are necessary to the constitution of the whole yet remarks the sage of chironia anticipating a well-known saying of goethe they spend their time in trying to jump off their own shadow or again man they teach is a part of god yet some men are evil as if the deity were an animal whose legs should walk different ways epictetus insists on the sociability of man but stoicism is the most unsociable doctrine ever preached pleasure can hardly be tasted without a friend but tranquillity stands absolutely alone the stoic used magnificent language about the world city the dear city of zeus which is full of friends and their words bore much fruit in the enactments of the great stoic lawyers but to him as to carlyle mankind were mostly fools epictetus speaks of children as snivelling brats the stoic allowed no weak hands to cling around his neck 
he would suffer but for himself alone he set a high value on social duties and discharged them faithfully but he taught that they are mere relations chance juxtapositions a man must perform them because it is the will of god but they have no vital affinity to happiness they give experience but nothing more for the sorrows or sins of others the stoic consoled himself very easily such men says marcus aurelius do such things of necessity he heard with the same placid smile of the infidelity of his wife the martyrdom of blandina or the revolt of a province had he believed in the immortality of the soul he would have thought more of the souls of others the stoics were in theory determinists but in practice they insisted in the most strenuous language that the will is free to this extent at least that it can always and at any moment choose what is right not zeus himself says epictetus can conquer the will like a good king a true father he has given us a will untrammelled uncompelled he has put it wholly in our control and not left even himself the power to thwart or hinder it it is curious to note the many points of similarity between stoicism and calvinism the stoics believed in instantaneous conversion what asks chrysippus if lycus passed from vice to virtue while hurled into the sea by hercules like a stone from a sling the words remind us of the knight who found mercy between the stirrup and the ground they divided mankind into two classes the fool who could do nothing right and the wise man who could do nothing wrong they taught that all sins are equal as well they said be a mile under water as an inch they disparaged literature and art and had disputes about assurance and final perseverance some of them were antinomians all of them may be called solifidians in its finer traits as has often been remarked stoicism bears a striking though superficial resemblance to the epistles of st paul and it is perhaps more than a historical coincidence that its chief stronghold was tarsus few if any of its great professors were greeks and its whole tone was anti-hellenic but it was admirably suited to the rigid integrity of the roman character and to the thin abstractions of the old roman religion under the early empire it was the philosophy of the political dissenters it was framed for rebellion and could not bear the sunshine it ruined seneca and was itself stifled by the purple of aurelius stoicism left behind it many enduring results chief of which for our purposes are the logos doctrine in physics and in morals the conviction that man's happiness must be sought in the perfection of his moral and intellectual nature they inherited this conviction from socrates but they deepened it immensely though in a one-sided way their gospel is that of the strong man but it may be said that this harsh evangel has never been better preached in ancient or in modern times their fault is that they refused to accept the teaching of facts pantheism insists on finding perfect unity in this world and the force with which it pulls together the subject and object results in their springing more violently apart hence it became evident that the point of union must be sought above in the conception of a god who made both the eye and the not eye who therefore is higher than either and yet in both thus the craving of thought for the one is satisfied and the opposition of mind and sense is made susceptible of reconciliation there remains a difference but no longer a contradiction this is the philosophical statement of the task attempted by the platonists all the objections which they urged against the porch its individualism its rigorism its moral inconsistency its incompatibility with religion in general and with hellenism in particular flow from the same source 
End of section 1. Section 2 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2. The Pythagoreans. The reaction against Stoicism was the work partly of the Pythagoreans, partly of the Platonists. The names are not easy to distinguish. Plato himself Pythagorized, and towards the end of the second century after Christ, the two schools melt into one another. The distinctive features of Pythagoreanism were the love of sacred numbers and the ascetic life. Pythagoras flourished in the 6th century before Christ, and Diogenes Laotius tells us that the last philosophers of his school were those whom Aristoxenus knew, the disciples of Philolaeus and Eurotus of Tarentum. Philolaeus was one of the teachers of Plato, and the mystic arithmetic of the Timaeus probably comes from him. Another famous name is that of Lysis, the tutor of Epaminondas. Aristotle wrote a treatise, no longer extant, on the Pythagoreans, and down to the end of the 2nd century BC the sect attracted the attention of writers, among whom were Aristoxenus, Neanthes, Decaeacus, and Hermippus. When we are told that the school disappeared, we must understand that it renounced the lecture hall and ceased to write. The Pythagorean life maintained an apparently unbroken existence. The earliest distinct traces of this ascetic discipline meet us in the literature of the 4th century before Christ, but they are at first connected rather with the name of Orpheus than with that of Pythagoras. Herodotus tells us that the Egyptian priests would not wear woolen garments in the temple, and were never buried in woolen, agreeing in this with those that we call Orphics and Pythagoreans. Woolen garments were forbidden from some mystic dread of animal contamination. The Hippolytus of Euripides, the stepson of the wicked Phaedra, eats no flesh and lives in virgin chastity because he takes Orpheus for his king. Plato knew a crowd of books ascribed to Orpheus and Musaeus. Some thought that they were compiled or interpolated or invented by Onomocritus, who tampered with the text of Homer and was banished from Athens by Hipparchus for forgery. It is curious that Aristophanes had nothing to say about these ascetics. They can hardly have been numerous in his day. A hundred years later the Pythagoreans, as they are now distinctively called, afford great sport to the comic writers. The Pythagoreans, says one of the characters in the Tarantines of Alexis, as we hear, neither eat kitchen stuff nor anything that has life, and they alone drink no wine. Well, but, the other replies, Epicurides is a Pythagorean, and he eats dogs. Aye, but not till he has killed them, and then they are no longer alive. Eating dogs may be meant for demolishing cynics. The wits amused themselves with the meagre diet, the silence, the subtle disquisitions of the Pythagoreans, and even scoffed at them as the unwashed. This was hard, for they washed oftener than most people. Again, after a long interval, we come across new evidence of the life. In Judea, it is thought by Zeller and Schurer to have contributed to the rise of Essenism. In the West, Cato heard Nearchus, a Pythagorean, lecture at Tarentum in 209 BC. Ennius translated the works of Epicamus of Megara, a comic poet of the 5th century, who interlarded his jokes with a dash of heavy philosophizing. Towards the end of the 2nd or beginning of the 1st century before Christ, the school broke once more into literary productiveness. About 90 Pythagorean treatises belonging to this period are enumerated by Zeller. They were nearly all pseudonymous. Many bore on their title page names that belonged to the ancient history of the school, that of Pythagoras himself, of Brontinus his father-in-law, 
Theano his wife, Telarges his son. A great mass were attributed to the old mathematician Archytas. The best known is the Golden Verses, a brief collection of moral precepts in seventy-one hexameter lines. Another famous treatise is that of Ocellus Lucanus, in which a brief sketch of a pantheist system is succeeded by some quaint rules for the insurance of a beautiful progeny. Ocellus handed down to the later Platonic school the Aristotelian tenet of the eternity of creation. In the first century BC we find the school existing in Rome. One of its adherents was P. Nigidius Figulus, Praetor and Pompeian, who was a voluminous writer, and enjoyed repute as astrologer, prophet, and magician. Vatinius is charged by Cicero with calling himself a Pythagorean, and sacrificing little boys. If he really did this, he was a mere necromancer. Cicero himself wrote a Timaeus, in which Nigidius figures as one of the dramatis personae. The learned Varro made frequent mention of Pythagoreanism, and the no less learned Alexander Polyhistor, who flourished at Rome between B.C. 80 and B.C. 62, has left us an account of certain Pythagorean commentaries, which are of particular value, because they are thought to have been known to Aristotle, and in that case reach back beyond the apocryphal literature. Pythagoras taught his disciples every evening when they came back home to say, What have I done amiss? What duty have I done? What have I left undone? Not to offer victims to the gods, but to worship only at bloodless altars. Not to swear by the gods, but to live so that all men would believe their word. To revere elders, to honour gods before heroes, and heroes before men, and parents before all other men. To live so with one another as to make friends of enemies, and never to make enemies of friends. To call nothing their own, to support the law, to resist lawlessness, to destroy no cultivated plant, nor any beast that is not hurtful to man. That modesty and discretion consist neither with uproarious laughter nor with a sullen face. To avoid fullness of flesh, to practice the memory, neither to say nor do anything in a passion. To respect all or not at all kinds of augury. To sing hymns to the lyre, and cherish a grateful remembrance of good men. To avoid beans because they are windy, and so near akin to things that have soul. Wind and soul, it should be noted, may be expressed by the same word, pneuma, in Greek. In respect of doctrines, Polyhistor tells us his book taught that monad was the beginning of all things, and that out of the monad came into being the indefinite dyad, which is, as it were, the matter for the monad, the cause, to work upon. The monad is the one God, it is a phrase which constantly reappears in this sense. The indefinite dyad, or two, is matter not yet shaped and ordered. It will be noticed that Polyhistor's authority speaks of it as evolved out of the one, which is pantheism and not Platonism. Out of the one and two spring the other numbers, and from these points lines, superficies, and solids. Hence the world we know, which is animated, intelligent, and spherical. In the middle of it is the earth, which is also spherical and inhabited all round, so that what to us is down is to the antipodes up. Thus all science, physical and mental, is resolved into arithmetic and geometry. The Pythagoreans had observed the numerical relations of musical sounds and found in them the explanation of everything, just as a modern savant finds the clue to eternity in evolution. They would have been immensely interested in the combination formulae of modern chemistry, like ourselves, they measured the great unknown by the little known. They regarded number not as the manifestation of law, but as the law itself. To the Platonist law was the idea, the thought of God. 
both numbers and ideas are immaterial and thus they were readily confused but the numbers were not only mathematical and scientific they were also religious and had a life of their own derived from judea and babylonia they were tricksy sprites and we shall see what they made of platonism in the end the soul the commentaries proceed is a bit broken off the ether cold ether but it is immortal because the ether is immortal it is divided into three parts situated in different parts of the body the intelligence which inhabits the brain is alone properly immortal after death the soul still wears the shape of the body pure souls are conducted by hermes to the highest impure souls dwell in solitude each by itself cut off from all communion with their kind bound by the furies in adamantine chains the whole air is full of souls these are called demons and heroes and by them are sent dreams and prognostications of health and sickness to man and beast to them appertain lustral and propitiatory rites augury and omens the commentaries as they stand show signs of stoic influence quote the golden verses and give to god a hebrew title the highest their exact nature and date are uncertain but we may accept them as perhaps the oldest existing monument of pythagoreanism like the golden verses they form a sort of catechism or manual adapted to be learned by heart the philosophy is archaic confused and imperfect the pythagoreans were spiritualists yet from the cold soul it can be seen that they had only imperfectly grasped what is meant by spirit their system was more a religion than a philosophy in fact it was not a system but a handful of leading ideas which were allied through the doctrine of numbers to pantheism yet could readily be adapted to platonism and were finally absorbed by that school they believed in immortality in transmigration in communion with god they believed in the unity of all in one god as the author of all they had taken the eleatic one a mere abstraction of the schools and made it an object of worship that is to say they had grasped the relation of science to faith but with this deity of the reason not of the conscience they combined all the gods and demigods of polytheism the created gods of plato a long range of beings of mixed nature ranging from seraphic goodness to devilish maleficence all were to be worshipped and propitiated though not in the same way equal honours must not be paid to gods and heroes the gods are to be worshipped at all times with holy words white garments and purity the heroes only in the afternoon purity is to be attained by baths and sprinklings and by avoiding things that defile the touch of a corpse unclean food and so forth flesh wine and marriage are not absolutely prohibited but abstinence is to be understood as a counsel of perfection we observe further a love of music a pitifulness a tendency to socialism and to mysticism generally a touch of art of affection of romance that lead us very far away from the rigid common sense of stoicism the pythagorean was in contact with the unseen and his morality was touched with emotion or in other words was religious this was naturally the ground on which paganism elected to do battle with the church the agnosticism of the porch with its utter lack of enthusiasm had no chance at all pythagoreanism seems to have had no existence in rome itself during the first or even the second century after christ though it made great progress elsewhere its chief records come to us from a later date but with a little careful sifting they yield a clear picture of the ideas that were coming into vogue between the times of augustus and marcus aurelius we have to do with the two romances of markedly anti-christian character the lives of pythagoras and of apollonius of tyana 
there were scores of lives of pythagoras of which three are extant by diogenes laertius porphyry and iamblichus the last is perhaps the very worst biography in existence the truth is that scarcely anything is known about this famous man it is probable that he himself never put pen to paper but even this is disputed he was born about 580 bc son of nesarchus a samian or as some said a tyrrhenian domiciled at samos taught by Pheresides of cyrus initiated in all the greek mysteries and a great traveller that he visited egypt in the time of king amasis is certain in later times he was said to have made acquaintance with arabs chaldees hebrews indians galatians in a word all the inspired peoples of the east from his long continued voyage he returned to samos but disgusted with the tyranny of polycrates and finding by experience that a prophet has no honor in his own country he emigrated to croton in south italy a flourishing city famous in particular for its school of medicine and for its athletes there his teaching enforced by his striking personality produced an electric effect men flocked to hear him adopted his practices and formed themselves into a sect or brotherhood the result was a widespread and passionate moral reformation incontinence disappeared luxury became discredited and women hastened to exchange their golden ornaments for the simplest attire Quote four, page five four one a change so violent would excite many enemies and hostility was embittered by the political activity of the new sect a popular insurrection was headed by ninon and chilon the pythagoreans were attacked in the temple of apollo or the house of milo the building was set on fire and many perished in the flames what became of pythagoras himself no man knew but in the time of cicero his tomb was shown at metapontum the sect never again attained to power though as we have seen it continued in a way to exist both in italy and elsewhere that pythagoras was regarded in very early times as endowed with miraculous powers there can be no doubt hermippus treats him as an impostor on this very account and by so doing testifies to the belief of his followers pythagoras not only taught the transmigration of souls but professed to know what had happened to himself and to others in previous existences xenophanes of alea tells us that once seeing a dog beaten he desired the striker to forbear saying it is the soul of a friend of mine whom i recognize by the voice another story tells that the soul of pythagoras had inhabited the body of hermotimus and in that shape recognized in apollo's temple at branchidae the shield which as euphorbus he had wielded in the trojan war he had a golden thigh like pelops which he once showed to abarus as a proof of his divine mission later writers added greatly to his supernatural character some said that he was son not of nesarchus but of apollo and parthenus the virgin mother and there was a widespread belief that he was at any rate an avatar of the sun god on one occasion when he had retired to pray on mount carmel the sailors waiting for him in the boat below saw him return to them floating over rocks and precipices he began his ministry by causing a miraculous draught of fishes cured diseases by incantations appeared at one and the same time at metapontum and tyromanium and died after a fast prolonged for forty days he was a brother to the birds and beasts an ox into the ear of which he had whispered never ate beans any more and a wild eagle perched upon his wrist and allowed him to stroke its feathers he was lord even of inanimate nature and when he was crossing the river nessus or caucasus the waters cried to him hail pythagoras Iamblichus professed to doubt some of these miracles 
and tells his brethren that they went too far in believing that of a god nothing was incredible the impression he wishes to leave is that such things were possibly true of pythagoras but certainly not true of our lord however the stories were current to the first century may probably be ascribed the received account of the constitution of the pythagorean sect diogenes laertius says nothing about it but other writers represent it as a strictly organized body consisting of two or three distinct classes of these the highest alone after a novitiate of five years silence were admitted to the inner secrets of the school the initiated are said to have recognized one another by secret signs like those of the freemasons the account rests upon an idea which had long been gaining ground that philosophy was like the mysteries and that every great teacher must have esoteric as well as exoteric doctrines doctrines that is to say which are not merely more difficult but more sacred than others so that it is a sin to reveal them to the outer world that the school had a compact form is highly probable from its history that it had the particular form ascribed to it in imperial times is exceedingly dubious the statements of iamblichus and porphyry have probably no other foundation than the fact that pythagoras delighted to clothe his moral teaching in a parabolic form in symbols as they were called such were the maxims not to jump over the steel-yard not to sit upon a bushel not to admit swallows into the house not to poke the fire with a sword not to turn one's face back upon a journey the explanation of which may be commended to the ingenious reader but the classes which never did exist and the disciplina arcani which to a certain extent did were useful weapons against the church which had a somewhat similar organization in the division into baptized and catechumens and guarded the eucharist from all but the first two of the most attractive features of pythagoreanism on which the biographers with justice lay great stress are the high value it sets upon friendship and its respect for women the romantic story of damon and phintius is too well known to need repetition but many similar if less beautiful anecdotes were current in the school how clinius of tarentum collected a large sum of money and sailed to cyrene to rescue prorus from bankruptcy how another brother rewarded the good innkeeper who had nursed and piously buried a destitute traveller pythagoras was reputed to have taught that friends have all in common and that a friend is another self and he bequeathed a generous brotherly spirit to his disciples women too were the object of special care the pythagoreans held chastity in great esteem and looked upon celibacy as a special grace it was no doubt a consequence of their regard for sexual purity that they treated women with a reverence and tenderness unknown otherwise in the ancient world they believed them to be as capable of inspiration as men they numbered women among their martyrs such as timica who bit her tongue out rather than betray her husband and seventeen women are included in what we may call the calendar of saints given by iamblichus down to the last women continued to occupy a conspicuous place in the history of the school the biography of apollonius of tyana is very similar to that of pythagoras here also it is impossible to discriminate fact from fiction the long and tedious life composed by philostratus in obedience to the command of julia domna the wife of the emperor severus quite early in the third century is what germans call a tendence roman a novel with a purpose hierocles early in the fourth century expressly sets apollonius against christ and there can be no doubt that this comparison was in the mind of philostratus also epictetus quotes a fine saying of apollonius when you wish to discipline yourself and it is hot and you are thirsty 
take a mouthful of cold water and spit it out and tell nobody this is the sole notice by a contemporary of this remarkable man he is said to have died about 98 a.d at the age of a hundred he wrote books on sacrifice and on astrological prediction which are lost with the exception of a few lines a collection of letters attributed to him remains but is of doubtful authenticity all that we know with certainty is that he was regarded as a perfect model of the pythagorean life and that he was credited with miraculous powers for this last fact we can quote the testimony of his enemies Moragines charged him with bewildering euphrates the stoic and lucian classes him as an impostor with alexander of abonotaikos we may notice here a point of some importance the pythagoreans though they believed in witchcraft or magic like that of horace's canidia regarded the black art with a certain aversion the miraculous powers which they claimed for their most eminent men depended like those of the buddhists on extreme asceticism and were never harmful hence it was possible for the platonist celsus though a believer in miracles to write against magicians and to sympathize with the epicurean lucian who delighted in running down a charlatan it is easy to see how origen was led into the mistake of regarding celsus as himself an epicurean what was asserted by some against apollonius and alexander and by others against our lord was that their signs and wonders were the proof not of idi of white and beneficent art but of the black magic of the magus or the prestidigitation of the goes the distinction is subtle for though black magic might not be used to do harm it was held lawful to employ it against the black magic of wicked people the clearest glimpse that we obtain of apollonius is afforded by a passage from his book on sacrifices quoted by the learned eusebius in his preparatio evangelica if a man wishes to pay fitting service to the deity and by that means to be singled out as an object of divine grace and goodness he must offer to that god whom we called the first who is one and above all after whom only can the other deities be recognized no sacrifice at all he must kindle no fire nor promise any earthly thing for he needs nothing not even from beings that are higher than we nor is there any plant any creature produced or nourished by earth or air which is free from pollution to him man must offer only the better word i mean that which is not uttered by the lips and ask good things from the most beautiful of all by the most beautiful faculty that we possess this faculty is intelligence which needs no organ therefore to the great and supreme god no sacrifices at all must be offered the writer distinguishes in a way that is already familiar to us between the one god and the lower gods heroes and demons inferior deities might be propitiated with the reek of sacrifice the lord of all gives all but receives nothing here we have the sublimest conception of theism united to what the fathers of the church rightly regarded as devil worship yet soaring above the paganism out of which it sprang but observe the price at which the heathen bought this high vision the father has become the ineffable the absolute who needs nothing and cannot be thought can only be seen as a bright light by the rapt intelligence that is by the intuitive power of the mind the prayer offered to him is no spoken petition but the better word the voiceless gaze of ecstatic communion in which all consciousness is suspended as in a trance compare this with the language of the psalmist for thou desirest not sacrifice else would i give it thee but thou delightest not in burnt offerings the sacrifice of god is a troubled spirit a broken and contrite heart o god shalt thou not despise 
the pagan god desired no sacrifice but he knew nothing of troubled spirits for broken hearts there was Sibylle, or isis or demeter with the wild frenzy of their mysteries it was their function to deaden for a time for they could not cure the anguish of the trembling soul how far apollonius was deceived and how far deceiver it is needless to inquire he lived habitually in that borderland of imagination which is peopled with the creatures of fancy and where nothing but the strong curb of christian morality can save men from delusion we need not recount his fictitious life which is very much a replica of that of pythagoras one scene only deserves notice that of his passion when domitian began to persecute the philosophers apollonius sailed to italy to beard the tyrant he was denounced by euphrates the stoic pharisee and charged with having sacrificed a boy with pretending to be god and with speaking against caesar he was not betrayed by a disciple celsus treated the treachery of judas as a proof of the impotence of our lord who had not succeeded in persuading even his nearest adherents but damus and demetrius two apostles who fill the place of st peter and st thomas who doubt but do not deny follow him to see the end apollonius appears before the emperor is mocked and ill-treated and challenged to save himself by a miracle he accepts the challenge and vanishes from sight such thinks philostratus should have been the behaviour of our lord the cross was impossible a crucified saviour was to the heathen mind the same thing as an ass-headed god some time after the accession of nerva apollonius ascended into heaven at what precise date he received divine honours we cannot say but that he received them is certain caracalla built him a shrine and aurelian was prevented from destroying tyana by a vision of apollonius who came to intercede for his birthplace the emperor recognized his visitor because he had seen his statue in so many fanes the romance of philostratus is marked by great bitterness against the stoics and attacks the heathen priesthood for their blind unreforming obstinacy its purpose is to advocate a new paganism the program of which was the union of church and state under the emperor as god's vice-regent the abolition of bloody sacrifices and apollonius for messiah all mythologies were to be recognized and if christianity would come in a place should be found for it to the pythagoreans of the first century belong also the names of moderatus of gades in spain and nicomachus of the arabian Geraza. the latter was a mathematician of some note and speculated largely in the religious significance of numbers perhaps the reader will like to know exactly what this means one denotes god intelligence form and in religion apollo not many the sun or atlas but as all is evolved from the one it also signifies matter darkness chaos in the first aspect it is the male in the second the female element in creation hence the supreme is masculo-feminine with two begins multiplicity the antithesis of the many to the one hence this again stands for matter and in religion for isis or aphrodite three is the first true number because it exhibits the proportionate harmony of beginning middle and end hence the sacred triplets which we see everywhere in art in science and in theology four was also a mystery are there not four quarters of the sky so was five for there are five fingers and five senses and seven for this is the number of the planets greatest of all these sacred emblems was the tetractus by which the pythagoreans swore but whether it was four ten or thirty-six is uncertain to us all this seems incredibly childish but at any rate it gave a zest to the arid science of numbers 
in pursuit of this will of the wisp the pythagorean discovered geometry and the laws of music as alchemists lighted upon chemistry and astrologers on the science of the stars thus men find kingdoms while searching for asses one other freak of nicomachus is worth a word the babylonians he said and astanes and zoroaster call the stars flocks Agelai. change the gender of this noun and add a second g and we have angels angeloi and archangels the name of the stars and of the demons angel is of course the greek word for messenger but this was far too simple an explanation for the pythagorean but as a name for heavenly beings angel was used only in the new testament and in the greek version of the old it is from one of these sources probably from the septuagint that the word had come to the knowledge of nicomachus perhaps it had reached the ears even of epictetus for he says that the cynic is sent to man as an angel from zeus here we seem to catch a glimpse of one of the little hidden pipes through which a knowledge of the bible was trickling into heathen thought we see also the sensitiveness to oriental influences which marked pythagoreanism from first to last this is the explanation of the neoplatonist dualism the philosophy of plotinus was purely greek his religion only was hybrid end of section two section three of neoplatonism by charles big this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter three the platonists atticus etc we must now turn to those men whose work it was to revive though with considerable differences the distinctive teaching of plato the revolt against the sceptical conclusions of the academics was begun by antiochus of ascalon whose lectures cicero attended at athens in seventy nine b c from him dates the reaction in favour of dogmatism that is of the inculcation of definite systematic teaching he taught the platonists once more to believe in the attainability of truth and gave them a creed the creed of the master whose name they professed it was long before the reaction gained a footing in rome itself epictetus knew no readers of the republic except a few ladies of the emancipated type who prattled about the marriage arrangements of the ideal state much as their modern sisters do about the dramas of ibsen down to the end of the flavian dynasty roman society or such part of it as cared to have a creed at all was divided between epicureans who denied academics who doubted and stoics who affirmed but hardly reasoned the last numbered in their ranks all the best and strongest characters even in the greek-speaking provinces before flavian times we meet with no platonist of eminence except the alexandrian philo and the influence of this remarkable man did not make itself felt till late in the second century when a school of christian scholars had arisen in his native town and his judaism was no longer absolutely unintelligible to a certain section of the neoplatonists the names of thrasyllus deciledus moderatus areus didymus and eudorus are of little importance except for the student of literary history and the dates of the two last are uncertain theon of smyrna a.d. 20 to 140, belongs rather to the role of mathematicians. But after the middle of the first Christian century, we begin to meet with a number of distinguished names. Plutarch was born in a.d. 48, Dion Chrysostom about a.d. 50. To the palmy days of the Antonines belong Favorinus, Calvisius Taurus, Nigrinus, Celsus, Atticus, Maximus Tyrius, and the famous physician Galen. 
about the middle of the second century the ideas which gave birth to neoplatonism emerge in albinus or alcinus there is some doubt as to his true name and apuleius and take more and more distinct shape in numenius and ammonius Saccus. we have already observed the point of view from which the platonist opposed stoicism on the great moral points of the sufficiency of virtue for happiness and the brotherhood of man the two schools were almost in complete accord even in physics so far as their roads lay together there was a certain agreement the platonist added the transcendence to the immanence of god and hence arose a considerable religious difference but in all that touched what we call natural science he borrowed very freely the language of his rival what he complained of was that stoicism could give no sufficient reason for its own conduct that it had no religion and was unable to explain the moral obligations that it insisted upon with such vehemence a remarkable passage of atticus preserved by eusebius in his preparatio evangelica fifteen four to nine will show the reader the attitude of platonism towards another great system of thought atticus belongs probably to the middle of the second century and he is writing against the peripatetics the school of aristotle the main charge which he presses against aristotle is that his morality is commonplace and the causes of this defect he finds in deism and in the vagueness of his teaching as to the immortality of the soul aristotle regarded virtue as the mean between two emotional extremes attained by habit under the guidance of reason happiness he taught was the supreme object of man's endeavour and virtue is the chief cause of happiness but he allowed also a certain weight to external goods birth wealth health beauty and fortune generally no one would call king priam a happy man and he would doubtless have added no one could give the name to st paul this the platonist regards as a poor low vulgar womanish idea of happiness it takes away from virtue its crown and royal sceptre it does not fire the heart and cannot help the young and ardent virtue is no longer the way to heaven but a dull earthly track in which the fox has as much chance as the eagle happiness itself becomes the sport of fortune a stroke of the clock gives it and takes it away the platonist is here in very close agreement with the stoic virtue is happiness earth can neither make nor mar the true life of the soul on this position that righteousness is its own sufficient reward that where the mind is right all is right there was no difference between the two schools it was the teaching of plato himself readers of the republic will remember the famous passage where he insists that the just man will be happy though he should be crucified for his justice in ethics as in physics the difference lies not in the fact but in the way in which the fact was linked on to a higher truth to the platonist virtue is the way to heaven to the stoic it is not the criticism of atticus it may be added is just as far as it goes the morality of aristotle is commonplace and because commonplace untrue doing a thing ten times over will not make us like it if the thing is disagreeable but atticus does not state the objection in the precise form that suggests itself at once to the christian reader of the nicomachean ethics the initial fault lies in the very attempt to define happiness that is perfection for no man can define that which he has not attained nor can we fathom the capacities of our nature until they have received their utmost expansion the platonist saw this for he placed happiness in the vision of god but he did not see it clearly for he attempted to define god himself and so brought back the limitation 
and further he omitted to notice that the righteous man of whom plato spoke might be happy not in spite but in consequence of his crucifixion the reason for this low-pitched morality atticus discerned and here again he was right in the deism of aristotle deism regards god as creating and equipping the world and then leaving it to itself nature is as it were a watch which he sends forth from his hands so perfectly adjusted that it needs no further interference man is furnished with reason and this is his only and sufficient guide like epicurus says atticus aristotle represents the gods as spectators in a theatre nay he is worse for while epicurus turned the gods out of the world altogether aristotle imprisons them in the world brings them close enough to see and hear and yet teaches that they do not care this may be a harsh judgment but it was the general opinion the christian fathers no doubt gathered from writers like atticus the view which with one accord they express that according to aristotle providence reaches down to the moon but no further and takes no count of what from them we have learned to call sublunary affairs deism is of course materialistic because it limits god locally and it was therefore abhorrent to the platonist pantheism he could speak of with equanimity for though he would not allow that god was in nature he insisted very strongly that nature was in god but deism turns the infinite into an absentee landlord the criticism of atticus may be hostile but it is not practically unjust for aristotle the scribe of nature is certainly the author of that divorce from religion which has so often left morality barren nor is it unjust to say that aristotle in effect denies the immortality of the soul his expressions are obscure and uncertain the soul which is in his view merely sentient and emotional is an entelechy a form or as we should say a function of the body though it may bear to the body the relation of a sailor to his boat the intelligence nous comes in afterwards from out of doors and is imperishable and divine but whatever these enigmatic utterances may mean no use is made of them rewards and punishments aspiration grace the hope of infinite perfection in a future life lie wholly outside of the peripatetic system the soul might as well be mortal there is no friendship between it and god to atticus this indifference seemed dreadful the belief in the soul's immortality is the cement that holds together the platonic school all that is great and bright and ardent in virtue flows from this faith if the soul truly is it never can die and must be in constant contact with the world of life truth and beauty to which by its nature it belongs to doubt its immortality is to doubt its existence and such a doubt is a practical denial of all fellowship between god and man thus deism was found as unsatisfying as pantheism these two systems are philosophies but not religions the first has no grace and the second has no righteousness but the second century was anxiously groping about for grace and righteousness and the spread of platonism was due not more to its speculative power than to the spiritual cravings of the age it was a time of wild religious emotion heathenism is generally passionate and the world's nerves were strained by physical misery which in some districts was very acute by the influx of maddening oriental fanaticisms and no doubt also by antagonism to christianity in the time of hadrian enomaeus wrote a book against the oracles entitled the charlatans unmasked a little later demonax scoffed at the mysteries and lucian scoffed at everything but these are isolated phenomena the decadence of the oracles which plutarch lamented was merely accidental 
caused by the shifting of population and political change men were not less anxious to pry into the future but they had found out cheaper safer and baser methods for the satisfaction of their curiosity it is commonly said that the second century exhibits a marked advance in the direction of monotheism this is by no means true philosophers spoke of one god as they always had done but they found at the same time excellent reasons for worshipping every deity and every demon known to mythology in the world at large polytheism had never been so rampant or so degraded the deification of men was one of the signs of the times not to reckon the caesars apollonius Merilinus, antinous and alexander of abonotekos of whom the two last were infamous characters all received divine honours peregrinus another bad man aspired to the same dignity the mother of dion chrysostom was worshipped and probably there were many similar instances men addicted themselves to particular divinities but merely as to the biggest and strongest of the supernatural powers naturally they were unable to distinguish one deity very accurately from another each nation had its own hierarchy and these hierarchies were regarded as identical the zeus of greece was confused with the jupiter of rome the osiris of egypt the baal of phoenicia and the minor gods were interchanged in the same way mythologies were mixed but not simplified the true characteristic of the age is to be found in the eager craving for some kind of divine grace and some kind of divine righteousness to the heathen mind these ideas necessarily assumed the shape of lustral purifications frenzied possession and a ceremonial moral law for these purposes the old roman religion was absolutely useless it lived on in caesar worship which was no new thing roman history begins with the apotheosis of romulus and was as devoid of spiritual significance as our own ceremony of drinking the queen's health caesarism typified the blessings of political unity and the ancient roman deities were all moral emblems of the same kind they were not persons but abstractions as Mommsen has admirably shown but in any case they were dead and gone the gods of horace and virgil are greek gods though they bear latin names and under the empire the real character of the indigenous roman worship was known only to the antiquarian this singular religious revolution was effected quite noiselessly and even the writers by whom it was accomplished do not seem to know what they were doing they brought about for the two mythologies of greece and rome the same kind of fusion that was being applied to all known mythologies under the reign of the antonines the religion of the old romans had fewer fables and more morality than that of any of the ancient peoples they worshipped the domestic economic and political virtues heaven was an exact copy of the earthly state and household jupiter and juno presided over all as lord and lady ops gave plenty the penates watched over the store closet janus guarded the door every act and every condition of life good or evil great or insignificant had its heavenly superintendent Salus sent health and febrous fevers but these thin abstractions neither lent themselves to art nor ministered emotions hence came the peculiar charm of stoicism for the roman mind it was in fact the philosophic expression of the national religious bent but art and emotion dangerous as they may be are inseparable in the long run from worship as civilization broadens the feelings and the imagination are quickened and demand nutriment and if this necessity cannot be supplied from native sources it must be met by importations from abroad the influx of greek and oriental ideas that is to say of art and of enthusiasm into rome 
was in one sense a deterioration for it certainly lowered the moral tone but in another aspect it may be regarded as an essential step in the education of the race emotion as was natural in times when man's passions were far more violent and rapid than now was sought for in its keenest forms and these came mainly from the far east Sibylle, with Attis and her frantic galley was brought from phrygia by decree of the senate itself in the agony of the hannibalian war in 186 bc the bacchic orgies took root in rome produced the most intolerable wickedness of all kinds and were suppressed by the police with the most sanguinary rigor from egypt in the latter days of the republic came isis osiris and serapis virgil expresses the old roman contempt for the brute gods of the nile and their intrusion met with vehement opposition on the part of the authorities on one occasion the emperor tiberius was so exasperated by a disgusting scandal that he crucified the priests of isis pulled down the sanctuary and threw the statue of the goddess into the tiber but early on in the second century the struggle was abandoned and temples of isis were erected without let or hindrance even within the limits of the sacred pomoerium that is to say in the heart of the city of rome about the same time the worship of the persian mithra attained to great popularity mithra the unconquered comrade was an especial favorite with the army the caves in which he was worshipped are found wherever the roman legions were stationed in england and elsewhere he belonged to the system of zoroaster which is still professed by the parsis and of all the ancient non-biblical religions was the purest and most elevated zoroastrianism tolerated no idols and its chief symbol was the sacred fire its governing idea is dualism in this world we see an unceasing and universal conflict between Ormuzd, the spirit of good and ariman the spirit of evil one day the good will triumph and mithra is the mediator by whom the victory will be achieved hence he is represented on the monuments as a youth slaying a bull and he was worshipped in caverns the cavern is this dark world and the bull typifies the power of evil mithraism had rites of initiation sacraments a hierarchy and a society it was widely diffused and strongly organized but except in the ecclesiastical writers it is little heard of probably because it gave rise to no scandals was sober in its ritual and made no noise in the streets zoroastrianism with much barbarous superstition combined a deep sense of moral evil and of all the pagan influences at work in the second century it was as far as we can judge the most wholesome isis worship was far more stirring and far more dangerous it was built upon the well-known myth which tells how osiris was slain by the wicked demon typhon and how isis his wife with labor and sorrow wandered over egypt gathering together the mutilated limbs of her murdered lord here again we have the strife of good and evil but in a far more sensuous and passionate form isis was represented with a rattle in her hand because she stirred the mind to frenzy every point in her worship was calculated to rouse and excite there were masquerading processions in the streets like those of a modern carnival there were prolonged fasts and elaborate scenic representations by night what these were we can only divine but from our knowledge of the egyptian ritual of the dead and from such books as mr lepage renouf's hibbert lectures we can form an idea which will not be far wrong the sorrows of isis the torments of the damned the happiness of the blessed would be exhibited with all the resources of the stage before the eyes of spectators wrought up to the pitch of excitement by fasting and expectation there they would see the crocodile lying in wait for the wretched soul that has not obeyed the directions of the priest 
and there they would learn the magic words that enable the faithful to escape from his jaws besides the great mysteries which had their gorgeous temples and crowds of worshippers in the great cities there were a host of little ones bringing the cup of frenzy to the lips of peasants in out-of-the-way corners the vagabond priest of the syrian goddess wandered from village to village with an ass laden with his paraphernalia and a couple of dancing boys at each hamlet they set up their idol performed a wild dance gashing their arms with knives as they whirled madly about and made a collection all these orgiastic worships inculcated the belief in a future life as it presents itself to the mind of barbarians that is to say as a scene of woe where yet some kind of happiness may be procured by due payment isis adonis thamos attis dionysus zagreus are all of the same family they rest upon the terror of the unseen and the tragedy of existence and they express these awful thoughts in fables of hideous deaths and savage mutilations they are all of great antiquity belonging to the primary stratum of religious belief and their renewed popularity in the second century must be regarded as a sort of volcanic upheaval of the hidden depths they all played upon fear and all were unable to turn fear to any moral end they fulfilled the task which aristotle assigns to tragedy purging the breast from time to time of the swelling emotions of terror and pity and so producing a temporary calm they told of a suffering god and promised a kind of atonement but what they taught men to bewail with frenzied lamentations was the suffering not the sinfulness of life they testify to the deep unrest of the time and its readiness for better teaching but what sort of character they tended to shape we see in the case of apuleius these maddening oriental deities were not artistic and were not reasonable and their worship was generally regarded by the heathen themselves only as a kind of safety valve a means of discharging the perilous accumulation of religious melancholy in the shortest and safest way by noise and movement and temporary insanity on all these grounds they were viewed by the educated greek with a certain reserve as upon the whole necessary and even salutary yet not as possessing any high spiritual value they belonged to demons not to gods and though the demons must be propitiated because they can do us harm they are not the givers of the most precious gifts these must be looked for in the reasonable service of the bright gods of olympus greece too had its mysteries we know little about the rites of eleusis the secret was well kept but they stood no doubt to those of egypt in the same relation as the poetic tale of demeter and proserpine to the ghastly myth of osiris they had the same office that of providing anodynes for affliction remorse and all those states of mental disquiet which under christian guidance lead to penitence but what the educated greek loved best were the serene and tranquil deities who gave good things and never did harm who presided with benignity over all the joys and interests of life and were never hard upon their worshippers homer and all the choir of poets had sung of them phadius and artists innumerable had made them live in marble everywhere their beautiful presence was visible in the lecture halls of the university in the market-place of the town by haunted grove and stream they dispensed to all men wisdom prosperity and merriment unfortunately men are not always wise and disasters come thick and fast the homeric frame of mind suited the ideal temperament of the greek and the bright days of life but in times of distress heathenism turned instantly into devil worship this was largely its character even in greece and almost universal elsewhere when the beloved germanicus died the people cast the images of the penates into the gutter 
such wild revolt against the injustice of heaven is not unknown in roman catholic countries where civilization is backward renan has told us of a breton blacksmith who threatened to shoe the virgin with red-hot iron if his daughter did not recover in heathenism it was an everyday incident at rome on the tomb of a young girl is found the following inscription procope manus levo contra deum prime innocentum sustulit i procope lift my hands against god who cut short my innocent life below is a rude sculpture of two hands upraised in protest germanicus the emperor titus servianus in the time of hadrian and the emperor julian all died with the same indignant sense of injustice in their hearts and on their lips even professed sceptics like pliny the elder and lucan believed in the most hideous forms of magic human sacrifice was not unknown the emperors nero hadrian commodus didius julianus heliogabalus and valerian were all charged with this crime so universal was the belief in witchcraft that every man of remarkable attainments was believed to have commerce with the infernal powers in the fourth century st athanasius enjoyed a wide reputation among the heathen and even among the arians for knowledge of the black art in the second century people in country districts were as much afraid of demons as the inhabitants of an african kraal often are with good reason of lions or elephants the air was full of these malignant beings ever ready to burst forth and injure religion was in the main a device for escaping from their clutches or for enlisting the aid of more powerful deities by arts which the priests could teach this hag-ridden superstition was the necessary outcome of heathenism it underlies all the art and poetry of the classic times as soon as men left behind them the buoyant thoughtlessness of homer as soon as the charm of life wore off and the question of the hereafter began to press these frightful dreams arose what we notice in the second century is not the decay of faith but the decline of other interests by which the inevitable tendency to devil worship had been kept in check reason was just strong enough to rob men of their hopes but absolutely powerless to correct their fears there is no reason whatever for supposing that the people at large had ceased to believe in the gods the world was producing new deities in shoals and even saints were forthcoming such was the aged priestess of whom dion chrysostom gives a charming description and the boeotian shepherd who was discovered and exhibited by herodes atticus men called him agathion the good angel or hercules because he spent his life in destroying wild beasts and supposed him to be the son of the demigod marathon he would touch no food that had been prepared by a woman and could detect by the smell where the female fingers had drawn the milk there were no doubt plenty of sceptics to be found in fashionable roman society especially during the first century while the memory of the civil wars still endured and caligula nero and domitian reigned but generally speaking educated men felt towards the vulgar religion in much the same way as rudyard kipling's babu towards the hindu orgies which he laughs at though yet they drive him mad their infidelity was but skin deep and they did not see how irreconcilable their stoic or peripatetic or epicurean theories were with the very roots of the established worship in the second century this was clearly understood worship was felt to be a necessity and the existing forms were thought to be so closely interlaced with the national life that if destroyed they could not be replaced the essential factors of true religion providence prayer atonement righteousness were all to be found there could not a sounder philosophy purify all these ideas and bind them together in a reasonable unity without pulling down a single altar could not heathenism be moralized this was the problem of the platonists and ours is to ascertain where and why they failed
End of section 3. Section 4 of Neoplatonism by Charles Big. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 4. Platonists, Nigrinus, Dion Chrysostomus. The Platonists of the latter half of the first and the earlier half of the second century were not marked by any striking originality of thought, and do not claim a high place in the history of philosophy. Their interest is almost entirely religious. We shall express the same thing better by saying that they were the champions of Hellenism. Hellenism is a word very distinctive of these times. It means Greek habits of life and thinking. The Greek gods were inseparably associated with Greek culture. Their high priests were Homer, Solon, Phidias, Demosthenes. They were the givers of civilization, the authors of all the arts, all the sciences, the inspirers of Attic elegance in thought, expression, dress and manners. The age was not one of production. Its most characteristic offspring was the rhetorician. But it was marked by a wide diffusion of what we may call intellectualism and an ardent though tasteless admiration of the old classical models. The universities were crowded with students, new professorships were established and endowed, and a succession of emperors, from Nerva to Marcus Aurelius, vied with one another in condescension and liberality towards men of letters. The love of literature was amazingly widespread in the old Greek world. Even in a half-savage outpost like Olbia, on the shores of the Black Sea, the mass of the people are said to have known the Iliad by heart. Nor can there be much exaggeration in this statement, for the harangues of the rhetoricians were stuffed full of Homeric allusions and quotations, and these must have been perfectly familiar to the popular audiences to which they were addressed. The revival of Hellenism is the distinctive feature of the second century, and with it went hand in hand the revival of Platonism, the most Hellenic of all philosophies. Epictetus knew no Platonists. Calvisius Taurus complains of the shoals of young men who wanted to plunge into idealism with unwashed feet, that is, without realizing the necessity of preparatory study. For as St. Justin found, the Platonist would not explain his doctrines to anyone that had not been through a regular training in abstract mathematical science. The task of the new philosophers was to regulate this movement by bringing philosophy into line with religion. They did not want to give up anything, not a single myth nor a single altar. They desired to purify morals, and hoped to effect this end not, like the Stoics, through rigid discipline, but by the spread of education. Hence art, science, literature are of far higher importance to them than to Epictetus, because it is through these means that they proposed to make men better, but not through these alone. They held that the highest culture is inseparable from, does in fact kindle, faith in the divine, and that this faith in turn quickens and deepens the insight of the thinker. Thus worship becomes the secret of life and the crown of philosophy. The student must approach his problem as the priest enters his shrine, in the spirit of holiness and reverence. They saw no difficulty in the established polytheism. All that was necessary was to graduate the gods and explain away a few of the more revolting fables about them. We shall discern their aims and methods best by taking a group of representative names. We will begin with Lucian's sketch of Negrinus. It belongs to the age of the Antonines, but we may place it first because it gives so clear a picture of the moral atmosphere of Platonism. When Lucian was on a visit to Rome, he called to pay his respects to the distinguished professor. Though personally unknown, he was immediately admitted and ushered into the presence of Negrinus, whom he found seated in his library. 
on the table lay a sheet of geometrical diagrams and a globe around the room were bookcases surmounted by busts of the ancient sages nigrinus was in the talking vein and began by lamenting to his bright young visitor the contrast between the vulgar bustle of rome and the simplicity of his beloved athens much as a modern man of letters might compare mayfair or cheapside with the groves of magdalen or the lime walk of trinity there is just this flavour of difference perceptible that nigrinus wanted to teach and not to shut himself up with his books athens is the true home of the philosopher and there the delight of the teacher is to mix with the throng of ardent youth and mark the change that steals over the noisy freshman as he takes his first bath in the mysteries of the absolute the genial old professor passes on from the abstract to the concrete and illustrates the restraining force of attic taste by an anecdote of a rich undergraduate who had passed under his eye in the old days he came to the university with a host of slaves dressed and bejeweled in the height of the mode and strutted along the streets thinking that all must admire and envy him the athenians set to work to teach him better not harshly nor by open contradiction for after all every one has a right to live as he pleases in a free city but by good-humoured jests and lightly glancing asides if he went to the bath with a troop of attendants he would hear a whisper he is afraid of being assassinated but the bath is a very quiet place and there is no real need of an army here if he swaggered on the promenade in purple and gold he would be pursued by a ripple of undertoned banter see spring is here already or where does this peacock come from or perhaps they are his mother's clothes and so gradually the rings were laid aside the gorgeous raiment was exchanged for simpler attire the flowing locks were soberly trimmed and before the young fortunatus left the town he was much better the tone of the place had educated him this gay passage is interesting because it helps to explain the intellectual change of the second century it was a revival of hellenism a reaction against romanism the centre of thought was shifted from the banks of the tiber to those of the Elysus, as it was probably shifted again a little later onto those of the nile when nigrinus quitted athens for rome he felt as if he had left the light of the sun the coarseness the harsh vices and shameless impudence of the capital disgusted him the natural antithesis to roman grossness is stoicism the religion of rugged wills and sceptical intelligences platonism appealed to the temperate cultivated docile nature of the greeks its breath is the pellucid air of hellas not the miasma of the Subura. another interesting figure is dion of the golden mouth dion is far more of a rhetorician than of a philosopher but on this very account he shows us more distinctly than anybody else the set of the times the newborn zeal for religion the awakening of a true and thoroughgoing religious morality nay in dion we behold a very singular phenomenon the first gropings after the idea of a heathen church he is almost the only writer of antiquity who takes a keen practical interest in social problems and regards the elevation of the masses as a religious work this is a church view wholly different from the attitude of stoicism which taught that individual conversion was the one thing needful and that material circumstances did not signify in the least dion was born about the middle of the first century in prusa now brusa a moderate town of bithynia situated on the northern slopes of mount olympus he came of a wealthy equestrian family his grandfather was a friend of the then reigning emperor by whom he was presented with the roman franchise his father pasicrates was recognized as the chief citizen of prusa to the end of his life and his mother was so beloved that a statue and temple had been erected to her he was at first a rhetorician or sophist 
and like other members of that curious profession spent his life in wandering from town to town the rhetorician was one of the signs of the times a curious cross between an university extension lecturer and an operatic singer we must remember that in the second century there were hardly any topics for a popular lecturer all the sophist could offer was an exhibition of brilliant extempore talk about anything and everything the more trivial the subject the better it was said of swift that he could have written finely about a broomstick this was the ambition of the sophist dion in his younger days delivered displays as they were called about a parrot and a gnat the merit of the orator lay in his readiness his copiousness his grandiloquence and the skill with which he could interweave high-flown metaphors appropriate or inappropriate allusions to homer and a dash of philosophical or moral instruction the sophists were full of stagey ways and affected great splendour of apparel they dressed in character and on one occasion dion who was a thin little man appeared in a lion skin no doubt to perorate about hercules latterly his style became graver and more practical but he retained his sophistical mannerisms to the end and could hardly make a speech without assuring his audience that it was quite extempore and that he did not know what was coming next about this earlier stage in his career we have little information unless we may accept as historical a scene described by philostratus according to this romancing author vespasian just before starting on his expedition against vitellius gave audience at alexandria to euphrates the stoic dion the platonist and apollonius the pythagorean and begged the advice of the three philosophers on the delicate question whether he should make himself emperor or not euphrates recommended him to re-establish the republic dion preferred an oligarchy but urged vespasian to leave the decision in the hands of the people apollonius answered i care not about politics for i am subject to the gods alone but i do not wish the flock to perish for want of a just and moderate shepherd vespasian wished to show his gratitude by rich gifts to his three counsellors apollonius refused all reward dion begged the discharge of a philosophic friend lasthenes who in a rash moment had enlisted in the army euphrates pulled out of his pocket a paper which he had brought with him ready written full of requests for himself and his friends the passage is intended as a cut at stoicism for its impractical political intransigence and its inconsistent morality in the reign of domitian dion was in rome enjoying the intimate friendship of an illustrious man nearly related to the imperial family this was probably flavius sabinus who was put to death by domitian a d eighty two after this tragedy dion fled from rome whether banished by formal decree or driven forth by horror and personal fear is uncertain what he calls his exile lasted thirteen years and it is dion's praise that the touch of misfortune brought out the real goodness and sincerity of a somewhat flighty nature he faced his adversity with cheerful resignation often he had read often he had preached about the temptations of wealth and the blessings of poverty now if god allowed him he would find out for himself how the truth was the delphian apollo in prose for the prophet no longer spoke in verse bade him do what he was doing manfully till he had come to the ends of the earth and in reliance upon this behest dion set out to live the life of a wanderer alone and in ragged garb with nothing in his pocket but the phaedo of plato and a speech of demosthenes he found his support partly by manual labour as a gardener or a bathman partly by the arms of the charitable during this time of wandering we get but an occasional glimpse of him he tells us himself how in obedience to apollo's command he roamed as far as borysthenes or olbia on the black sea 
where the men of the town crowded into the theatre to hear him discourse about the gods though the battle signal was flying from the walls and their harness was on their backs how he followed in the train of the army on the expedition against the getai how towards the end of the time he met a holy priestess in a country place in greece who prophesied the downfall of the tyrant and the near end of his own sufferings the death of domitian delivered him from all apprehensions at the moment dion was near a large roman camp and the excitement of the soldiery at the news of the emperor's assassination seemed likely to issue in mutiny and outrage dion cast off his cloak and sprang upon the altar exclaiming but he the wily odysseus stripped off his rags he was never without an appropriate verse of homer and succeeded in bringing the turbulent legions over to the side of nerva ill health kept dion in retirement during the short reign of nerva but under trajan he emerged again and was treated with great distinction on one occasion the soldier emperor took him up in his triumphal chariot and said to him i don't know what you mean but i love you as myself dion no doubt set the compliment to his goodness of nature against the affront to his style in truth he did not always quite know what he meant himself and trajan's civilities acted upon this uncertainty of purpose in a way that shortly caused him great chagrin about a d one hundred he returned to his native town to look after his property which had become sadly dilapidated during his long absence dion was still a sophist at heart with all the love of magnificence that marked his class and he allowed himself to be seduced by the dream of doing for poor little prusa what herodes atticus had done for athens only while herodes had spent lavishly of his own enormous wealth dion had little capital beyond his golden tongue unfortunately things were just ripe for the most chimerical schemes the asiatic towns were agitated by the most furious rivalries and prusa was determined not to be left behind in the race the happy moment seemed to have arrived there was the great dion their townsman once more among them what might not his influence with the emperor effect trajan himself had said that he wished to favor their city in every way dion easily persuaded his townsmen to set about rebuilding prusa it was an age of architectural extravagance on a scale of magnificence proportioned to the splendid destiny in store the work was begun and great expenses incurred but all that trajan could be induced to do was to make prusa an assize town to add a hundred members to the senate and to establish there the central offices for the administration of the bithynian revenues this was a sad blow to their ambitious hopes those who had promised subscriptions refused to pay up and the proconsul exacted the money from the township at large the ratepayers were so exasperated by this unexpected turn of events that they tried to set dion's house on fire and would have stoned the too persuasive orator to death if they could have laid hands upon him dion was evidently not a practical man but he took this lesson too in good part he discarded the ambition to lead a vestry quitted prusa and contented himself with the affectionate admiration that to the last attended upon his unquestioned literary and oratorical ability he appears to have spent the last years of his life chiefly at rome where plutarch was his friend and favorinus his disciple and died probably about a d one hundred and twenty dion was a born sophist and his orations are as a rule too abstract and vague and too verbose to please the modern reader he is most interesting when he himself probably thought he was least so in those speeches where he tells the amusing tale of his vexations at prusa among other misdeeds he had ordered the demolition of an old smithy which his opponents insisted ought to have been preserved as the workshop of the only distinguished artist in bronze that the town had ever produced 
Dion replied that the place was so dilapidated that every stroke of the hammer upon the anvil threatened to bring it down upon the workmen's heads. But it is amazing how little reality there is in his speeches. How much he could have told us. He knew Greek life from top to bottom, as no other man of his time did. Yet there are only five or six passages that set before us what he saw. But it is due to Dion to add that these few notices tell us more about the misery of the times than we gather from anybody else. He had witnessed the terrible poverty and depopulation of the country districts, and thought earnestly about a remedy for the evil. He speaks with manly indignation of the horrible cancer of sexual impurity, which sapped the life of the heathen world. He does not regard these frightful sins with the horror or the sternness of a Christian, but at any rate he points them out and condemns them. Indeed, he is always wholesome and earnest. Many of his orations were delivered with the very practical object of restoring peace between neighbouring towns, and in his most complimentary harangues there is always some point of well-aimed admonition, as when he rebukes the Alexandrines for their scurrilous tongues. Dion had, in short, a humane and philanthropic spirit. The ancients describe his later harangues as those of a counsellor, a statesman, and both epithets are deserved. He has many points of affinity with Stoicism, but his view is larger, more modern, more Christian, we may almost say. He has caught the Stoic idea of the world city, the dear city of Zeus. Philosophy tells us of a good and loving communion between demons and men, wherein all the benefits of citizenship and law are granted, not indeed to the brutes, but to all reasonable beings. It is far better and juster, he says, than the boasted polity of Lycurgus, which did not permit the helots to become Spartans, and so fostered an undying enmity between the two. There is neither master nor slave in the city of God. He compares the world to the temple of Eleusis, in which, at one point in the celebration of the mysteries, the initiated danced round the novice with torches in their hands. So in this beautiful universe not men but the immortal gods circle in rhythmic chorus round the whole race of man, bearing with them night and day, and all the lights of heaven. Dull is the heart that cannot see that celestial band, and him above all, fairest among many fair, who governs and orders all the wondrous show. To Dion this language meant more than it did to Epictetus. The Stoic, after all, cared little for any but the elect of his own conventicle. But Dion really loved the poor, and saw in their virtues the best philosophy. The most attractive of his speeches is the Euboic, in which he paints their simplicity, their generosity and trustfulness, their domestic affection and earnest piety. It is a picture of some poor folk who were good to him when he was shipwrecked on the iron-bound coast of Euboea, and it is meant to show how love and goodness can sweeten the hardest lot. Nothing can be more tender than this charming prose idyll, and the feeling which inspires it is undoubtedly genuine. As regards slavery again, Dion repeats the usual stoic commonplaces. The wise man alone is free, the bad man is always a slave. But here too he penetrates deeper into reality. He considers the different methods in which men become slaves, and pronounces them all unjust. The time had not yet come for giving practical effect to such a truth as this, and Dion did not always quite mean what he said. He recommends the master not to pursue a runaway slave. If the slave, he asks, can be happy without a master, who is supposed to be better than himself, why cannot the master do without the slave, who is supposed to be worse than himself? But when on his return to Prusa he found that his own human chattels had taken the opportunity of absconding, he manifests some, perhaps not unnatural, vexation. 
dion was an orator differing from other orators of his time not in method but in tone after his exile he never again declaimed about parrots and gnats all his utterances are marked by moral seriousness on this account men called him a philosopher but he had no disciples and never discussed he became in fact a preacher and we have to gather his philosophical belief from those of his speeches which most nearly approach to the type of sermon of these the most remarkable is the olympic delivered at olympia in presence of the glorious statue of zeus the masterpiece of phidias which is in fact the text of his discourse the speech is one of the best expositions of hellenism that we possess dion enters upon his matter by an emphatic condemnation of atheism and of deism many he says have set up a bad god what they are pleased to call pleasure a womanish deity whom they adore in the dark with symbols and pipes this is what the stoic hierocles called the harlot doctrine of epicurus what in its modern garb of utilitarianism carlyle scoffs at as the worship of the frying pan we should not grudge them their jollity if their heresy ended with their drinking songs but they have taken away our gods and banished them from the world saying that there is no mind in the universe and no ruler over it no providence and no creator they are worse than the deistical peripatetics who at least have some sort of god if only like a child who starts his hoop and then lets it bowl along by itself where are we to look for sounder doctrine first and foremost to the testimony of the soul itself the belief that is born in every man secondly and thirdly to the corroboration of poets and legislators for there is no song no justice without the inspiration of god fourthly to the teaching of art for whence comes the sense of beauty in form and colour and to what conclusions does it lead us on but here a difficulty arises what shall we say of the fair creations of the sculptor or the painter of phidias or zeuxis for they do not deliver the same message as the verse of homer or the statutes of solon the poet's song introduces into olympus the tumult of human passion the lawgiver's code embodies the ideal of severe unbending right the breathing marble the glowing canvas call up before us a figure which is pure beautiful unchanging but human can this be a worthy representation of god here we reach the burning question of the day how is polytheism idolatry to be reconciled with the reasonable service of an intelligent and spiritual deity to solve this problem we must call upon yet a fifth witness the philosopher whose office it is to explain and harmonize the superficial divergences of the other four we must have recourse as we should say in our modern jargon to the higher criticism this dion proceeds to do in his oratorical fashion by calling up the spirit of phidias to answer for his statue thou noblest and best of artists he says no man will deny that thou hast wrought a vision of wondrous delight for all greeks and all barbarians the most toil-worn of mankind as he gazes on this statue of thine would forget all the woes and hardships of life but hast thou wrought for us a shape worthy of god for great and lovely though it be clothed in light and grace it is still the shape of man phidias replies that no human skill can adequately represent the majesty of the divine the gods are in heaven they are the sun moon and stars but these bright orbs do not satisfy the cravings of the heart they are too simple and too far man wants gods that he can touch as infants in the dark stretch forth their hands and cry for their father or mother so men loving the gods for their bounty and goodness long to be with them and speak to them 
hence the artless barbarians make gods of mountains or trees or shapeless stones but the cultivated greek needs some fitting image of the divine intelligence hence we turn to the human body attaching to god that which is for us the vessel of wisdom and utterance striving to represent the invisible and formless by visible form by the best symbol in our power if the sculptor's art is limited in its vehicle of expressions there is a gain even in its simplicity poetry is full of life and movement but it is wild and turbulent homer first showed to the greeks many beautiful images of all the gods and of the great god of all some clement some fearful and terrible but my zeus is calm and ever mild as befits the lord of peaceful hellas him by my art and the wise counsel of Ellis, i set up here tranquil and majestic in his unclouded beauty giver of life and wealth and all that is good father saviour guardian of all mankind as perfect a counterfeit of the ineffable nature of god as mortal skill can engrave in this passage we have the most plausible exposition of the platonism of the second century or the reformed paganism as it is sometimes called for they are one and the same thing the gods are many but one is king they are spiritual just and beneficent and man must and can be like them if homer tells us shocking tales these are the forgeries of the poet who lives to please and to astonish reason and true art are safe and sufficient guides dion's plea for images is not without justice what he defends is not idolatry but religious art in this again he went further than his contemporaries who for the most part admitted a real presence of the god in the statue as for the masses it cannot be doubted that they actually worshipped not only the work of men's hands but shapeless stones mountains trees and in egypt beasts on the subject of the demons he says little or nothing spiritual beings are all godlike and good here too he was in advance of his times and here too he did not see the state of things quite clearly a great part of the greek ritual and a still larger part of the barbarian religions was devil worship and this dark fact called imperatively for some sort of explanation it was the necessary result of two causes polytheism and heathen notions of the divine wrath and the mode in which it was handled forms generally one of the most significant features in the religious thought of the second century end of section four section five of neoplatonism by charles big this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5. Plutarch Plutarch was as pure and amiable as Dion, and of a much higher order of ability. He was not an orator, and speaks of the sophists with gentle dislike for their insincerity. He was not even a philosopher, in the sense in which we apply the term to Plato or Aristotle or Locke. Philosophy was not his first, nor by any means his only concern, and his principles are not always clear consistent or developed he belongs rather to the class of critics or essayists or men of letters and in this he holds a foremost place every subject that interested the mind of his time is discussed in his voluminous pages but the motive is almost always moral or religious all that he wrote is marked by a sincere and beautiful piety he was the most learned chatty and agreeable of men and never said an unkind thing of anyone except the historian herodotus who was as amiable as plutarch himself but angered the boeotian sage by disparagement of the boeotians plutarch loved his native soil 
and deserted as it was in his time by gods and men he would not allow the world to forget that it was the land of cadmus of hesiod of pindar of corinna and epaminondus his one unfortunate treatise on the malignity of herodotus may be pardoned as a natural if ill-aimed outburst of indignation against the injustice of mankind who spoke of his countrymen as boeotian swine his life like that of most men of letters is little known not that he courted obscurity one of his shorter papers is on the maxim live forgotten the author of this adage says plutarch devised it that he might not be forgotten but the tranquil life of a man of the pen is marked by few incidents he was born about a d forty eight in the reign of claudius and died about a d one twenty in the reign of hadrian he studied no doubt at athens under the good ammonius a peripatetic and an egyptian he lectured at rome as a young man and visited the capital again in later years he had seen alexandria and sparta but the greater part of his long life seems to have been spent almost entirely in his little native town of Chaeronea. There he was squire, mayor, or archon, and priest, attending to the welfare of his tenants, managing the affairs of the community, presiding at their sacrifices, passing the greater part of his time in his well-stored library, and making occasional excursions into the larger world. There is something very English about such a life. We may consider Plutarch as a sort of Greek Kingsley, his family held a considerable position and were rich in ability his great-grandfather nicarchus his grandfather lamprius his father whose name is not recorded his brothers timon and lamprius were all men of intelligence notwithstanding his retired life he knew everybody that was worth knowing trajan and hadrian are said to have honoured him with public dignities and though this particular fact is uncertain he appears to have enjoyed the esteem of both princes Plutarch is probably still best known by his Parallel Lives, a series of biographical sketches in which he depicted and compared the great heroes of Greek and Roman history side by side. In our scientific age, which thinks more of the general movement and less of the individual life, which is highly impatient of all moral reflections, and is rather pleased when it can prove that a fine saying was never uttered, or a fine deed never done, the lives have become a grammar school text. But from the revival of greek to the time of rousseau they were one of the most popular books in existence montaigne delighted in them shakespeare drew the material for his roman dramas from north's translation and jeremy taylor found in them an inexhaustible store of anecdote and illustration there he read how lysimachus sold his kingdom for a draught of wine and repented too late how phocion when the populace applauded him turned to his friends and asked what folly have i uttered how alexander said antipater knows not that one tear of his mother blots out all the libels he has written against me how the dying pericles when his weeping friends were praising some his eloquence some his courage some his victories raised his head from the pillow and said what you admire are little things or gifts of fortune the greatest of all you forget that no citizen ever wore black through me to plutarch as to teufelsdruch the supreme interest of history was the humano-anecdotical there he found human nature at work on the most picturesque and impressive scale always the same human nature always teaching the same lessons of piety duty magnanimity moderation and kindliness for our present purpose the lives are of importance as showing not only the learning and amiability of their author but the changing attitude of the thought of the time 
if we contrast this broad social artistic view of life with the sour puritanism of the stoic we shall find it wiser and more practical to epictetus caesar is the corrupter general the devil to plutarch as to st paul he is a minister of god for good though possibly a very unfaithful minister no other writer of antiquity handles the domestic affections with such insight as plutarch one of the best of his treatises is the dialogue called amatorius it is suggested by a comical incident of real life a wealthy widow named ismenadora of great personal attractions and spotless character became enamoured of a poor young gentleman bacon the suitors were furious and bacon though not unwilling was afraid of the ridicule of his companions things were at a deadlock when ismenadora boldly cut the knot by carrying bacon off and marrying him there and then this gives rise to a discussion whether a man ought to marry whether he is justified in marrying a wife richer and a little older than himself and how he ought to treat his wife the dialogue is marked by its outspoken condemnation of that ghastly greek vice which cannot even be named by christian lips but still more by its exquisite treatment of the subject of conjugal love in marriage says plutarch it is better to love than to be loved his tone is that of a modern gentleman the wife is to be not the mistress only but the friend and companion of the husband and he overflows with anecdotes of the purity the courage the generosity of woman nor does marriage in his view altogether lack a sacramental character it is under the special care not of the earthly but of the heavenly eros this goes to the root of the matter and it is hardly too much to say that the amatorius is worth all other heathen writings on morality put together plutarch's life was in strict accordance with his professions this difference of moral tone implies of course a difference of moral theory and in the de virtute morali plutarch explains very clearly his scientific objections to stoicism there are he says two great moral antitheses the first is between the soul and the world the second is in the soul itself between reason and a desire the stoics admit the first but not the second they regard the soul as practically one hence vice is an error of judgment marcus aurelius taught that all things are opinion that is to say that moral evil consists in the mistaken idea that pleasure is good obviously then vice is a corruption of the soul itself in other words of the god within thus pantheism not only as we have seen makes all bad men equally bad but destroys all possibility of amendment the whole soul is given up to evil and there is absolutely nothing left to which an appeal can be made plutarch admits both antitheses but in a much modified form the world is neither evil nor indifferent being the work of god it must be either a blessing or a scene of trial similarly in the soul reason and desire are distinguished not as opposites though they may become so but as superior and inferior the office of reason is not to extirpate affection for this is impossible but to control it affection is the matter reason the form and each moral virtue may be regarded as a mean between two extremes the too much and the too little thus courage is a mean between foolhardiness and cowardice on this view each virtue becomes a kind of musical harmony the tumult of sound is formed and regulated by the art of the composer but now earthly music may be better or worse according to the ideal of the artist and the skill whereby he realizes his ideal where the ideal is not absolutely master of the material the result is always discord pain the accompaniment and sign of effort and uncertainty so it is with virtue 
plutarch divides men into four classes the temperate the saint in whom reason is so supreme that there is no longer any resistance on the part of the lower nature the continent and the incontinent in whom good and evil are striving for the mastery good predominating in the first and evil in the second this is the region of free will as it is commonly called of choice and its concomitants shame repentance pain and lastly the intemperate the bad in whom evil is as absolute as goodness in the saint to the moral virtues the good things of the world or as plutarch called them the gifts of the gods are necessary and helpful the musician cannot play without an instrument and he can make finer music with an organ than with a drum it is obvious to what practical differences the two theories lead according to plutarch a good wife is a blessing according to epictetus she is a thing indifferent the latter looked upon a bad man with hopeless scorn as a fool the former cried to the weak and erring you are children of god you know better for the platonist held that reason is never false it contemplates the first abiding unchanging truths and always knows what is right it may sleep it may be violently overcome by desire but it is never persuaded to assent to sin the worst of men can be forced to give evidence against himself the platonist appeals to the testimonium animae naturaliter christianae the chief defect in his system is that it is aesthetic and intellectual rather than moral the student will perceive that in this analysis of the practical virtues plutarch has adopted bodily the teaching of aristotle the two agree again necessarily in setting the intellectual virtues above the practical this is merely their way of saying that reason or dogma or faith must regulate conduct a truth too obvious to need discussion but here begins the difference between the peripatetic and the platonist plutarch held that the reason nous which is not properly speaking in the body because the body is in it was in immediate contact with the divine saw the divine nature and possessed the divine thoughts thus reason dogma and faith are different names for the same thing thus sound learning and true godliness are identified plutarch was almost more priest than philosopher he would have said that he was a philosopher because he was a priest religion is to him the crown of life the source of all harmony and unity against the epicureans he maintains that those who make pleasure the end cannot live pleasantly there is no pure joy without a pious grateful spirit we have seen how he applied this maxim to the blessing of domestic happiness but he learned it also from the performance of his own priestly duties in the temple of apollo at Caronier. nothing that we see he says nothing that we do cheers the spirit more effectually than the sights and actions of our worship when we celebrate a festival or dance in a choir or attend at a sacrifice for there is a good hope and faith that the god will be propitious and favorably allow our service it is on the comforting nature of the belief and on the natural desire for perfection that he rests the immortality of the soul though he found it also in revelation without religion then society itself is impossible belief in the gods is the first and chiefest thing the cement of all society the bulwark of all laws like virtue religion appeared to plutarch as a golden mean between the marsh of superstition and the precipice of atheism atheism he regarded as a brutish way of thinking superstition was as bad as atheism for the crushing fear of the gods is inseparable from the wish that there were no gods but elsewhere he takes a wiser view few men fear the gods so much that it were better they should not fear them at all 
most men being unlearned yet not wholly bad worship the gods with a certain dread which is called superstition yet the fear is immensely outweighed by hope and joy and the filial feeling with which they pray for and receive good things as the gift of the gods superstition here means craven fear of the unseen it tells a man that the gods act towards him like tyrants by wrath or favor this is not true god is good as it is the property of fire not to chill but to warm so it is the property of the good to benefit not to harm hence plutarch was shocked by the old testament of which he had a little indirect knowledge because it speaks of the wrath of jehovah god is beneficence pure and simple thus hellenism intellectualism recoiled from the popular devil worship to the opposite extreme of geniality but plutarch was a firm believer in the divine government by rewards and punishments both in this world and in the world to come god renders to every man what he deserves those who are incurable he slays at once because they harm others and themselves most of all to others he allows a space for repentance for there is no fear lest any should escape his hands by gods plutarch meant the gods of greece though each man he thought was bound to worship the deities of his native land it was not lawful to explain away their personality you see what a gulf of impiety gapes for us if we turn the gods into affections or natural forces or virtues nor were they to be questioned if you are going to ask for proof about each one you will shake with your surface every temple and every altar and leave nothing free from cavil no hellenist was a monotheist not even the stoics who for all their pantheism were as superstitious as anybody else like all his school plutarch contented himself with teaching that all gods were pure reasonable and good and that one above all was father ruler and creator thus the minor deities became dependent and inferior beings as indeed they are in the timaeus acting as vice-regents of the supreme celsus compares them to proconsuls and nicomachus of gerasa calls them archangels a name which he must have borrowed from the bible plutarch generally thinks and speaks of god under the old royal and paternal forms but at times he adopts the modern pythagorean view and identifies the supreme with the absolute one of the most interesting of his dialogues is on the letter e which was fixed on the walls in three different places of the delphic temple the letter was shaped much as in our english alphabet but it was called a and this diphthong may mean thou art ammonius takes the name of the letter as a symbol of the deity and explains it to mean thou art one god is the one substance the eternal the all-sufficient in this adoption of the pythagorean doctrine we find the first distinct step in the transition from platonism to neoplatonism but like plato himself plutarch did not admit the eternity of creation as a necessary self-evolution of god another closely related doctrine that of ecstasy has not yet attained in his mind the definite position which it occupies in the teaching of plotinus but he was a firm believer in inspiration and revelation of every kind god manifests himself by the heavenly graces of love and genius by predictions omens dreams by what we call possession and by the ecstatic trance physical aids the fumes of a sacred fountain or the steam of the pythian cleft are sometimes useful and indeed ordained but the great help is the preparation of the soul by quiet and detachment plutarch in fact believes in revelation in the christian sense and in enthusiasm and trance in the pagan sense as he saw them actually manifested especially in his own land of boeotia but hardly touches on the philosophic trance of plotinus and exhibits no taint of the mesmerism of the later neoplatonists 
mysticism in the lower sense of the word is not yet welded into his system but he carefully laid the fuel for others to kindle we shall certainly not blame plutarch for believing in revelation which is the necessary corollary of belief in a god who is wiser and better than man but what we have to notice is that ecstasy is not as zeller seems to have thought a necessary complement of the doctrine of the absolute it is as plutarch shows much older than that doctrine and quite independent of it all that neoplatonism did was to make ecstasy absolutely sterile by divesting god of all relation to the world down to this point plutarch's creed is pure and elevating it is intellectual yet in the fine saying it is better to love than to be loved it is unconsciously at one with the teaching of our lord it is more blessed to give than to receive noble and even holy lives might be inspired by his teaching and in fact were so inspired not so far does there seem to be any great difficulty in his way the immoral myths which homer weaves about the persons of the olympian gods admitted of explanation plutarch compares them to the rainbow which colors yet refracts the light of the sun they might be gently put aside as the fancies of a crude semi-barbarous anthropomorphism or they might be treated as moral allegories nevertheless there was a great difficulty plutarch's doctrine was not a reform but a revolution and a conservative revolution which is a contradiction in terms he wanted to keep the whole ritual and yet transfigure it to put a christian head on a heathen body this could not be done for there was that in the ritual itself which made the junction impossible what he wanted to get rid of was magic but the belief in magic is the root from which polytheism sprang and dies only with the death of polytheism there were myths which could not be allegorized and rituals which could not be brought under the general doctrine of the unmixed beneficence of god there were the frantic orgiastic cults which were connected with the names of Sibylle, dionysus zagreus isis adonis and many others they had a certain religious meaning in so far as they gave barbarous expression to two great religious facts the sense of sin and the need for an atonement platonism could not account for either of these facts and was rather shocked by them nevertheless they were in hellenism itself and some kind of explanation must be provided this difficulty was met by the doctrine of demons plutarch approaches this subject several times from different points of view in his commentary on the timaeus he maintains that god the supreme intelligence the one word as he elsewhere calls him did not create either body or soul chaos matter the indefinite dyad already possessed both what god did was to infuse reason and form into this tumultuous disorderly life his work is compared to that of a musician who does not create sound but harmonizes it thus in the world animal which is a deity there is as in man a double principle the infused divine intelligence side by side with lawless desire this last is the evil soul of plato's laws another remarkable treatise is that on the failing of the oracles the decay of the ancient seats of prophecy lay heavy on the pious mind of plutarch how could god so change he asked as to withdraw from man this special mark of his favor through which so many blessings had been showered on greece in the great old days the decline was unmistakable boeotia had been a land of inspiration now her glory was all but departed the oracle of teresius at orchomenus had been dumb since the great plague at tus and tajara sheep browsed on the site of the fane 
desolation had fallen on the famous oracles of mopsus and amphilochus in silesia even at delphi one pythia did the work of the ancient three and the responses were given no longer in verse but in bald prose what was the reason the rough-tongued cynic said that the gods had packed up and gone in wrath at the wickedness of those who consulted them others sought a cause in the depopulation of greece which was so terrible that the whole country could with difficulty send three thousand hoplites into the field the same number that the single state of megara had dispatched in the old days to fight the persians at plataea plutarch himself cannot accept either of these explanations to him they seemed irreverent but what will be thought of his own answer he held that oracles were given not by the gods at all but by the demons who wait upon them their cessation might be accounted for either by subterranean catastrophes diverting those earthy fumes which at delphi and elsewhere excited the convulsions of the priestess or by the death of the demon himself for these beings though long-lived are not eternal in the reign of tiberius caesar a mysterious voice had sounded from paxae an islet of the echinides group bidding an egyptian mariner spread the news that great pan was dead and demetrius a roman officer while on duty in an island on the coast of england had witnessed a wild tumult in the sky which the people told him betokened the death of one of the princes of the air the demons he tells us in this strange dialogue are the agents of providence and especially of the divine retribution such work befits not the higher gods whom hesiod calls chaste givers of wealth to the demons belong the mysteries and all the dark side of religious life black and ill-omened days on which men devour raw flesh obscene cries at sacred altars fasts and beatings of the breast do not belong to the worship of any god but a propitiatory rites to keep off evil demons so with human sacrifices and tales of barbarous lust and stories of painful expiation like that of apollo after he had slain the python all these belong to the hard gods the alastors the same idea recurs in the dialogue on the face in the moon in the moon are both heaven and hell there the good after their appointed time of purgation become pure spirits and dwell in the elysian plain on the side next the sun thither go the evil to be tormented in the shadow of that awful face which is the face of proserpine but the good return again to the spaces below the air as demons some of them sin and abuse their powers these must once more endure the trial of life as man the isis and osiris is remarkable chiefly for its repetition in another shape of the doctrine of the evil soul the wild egyptian myth of the murder of osiris by typhon is meant to teach that the world is the work not of one author but of two typhon fights against isis and osiris as ahriman in parsi theology against ormuzd plutarch traces the belief in demons all through greek literature and all over the world he finds it in hesiod in plato in empedocles in xenocrates in the stoic chrysippus and in the atomus democritus in persia in thrace in phrygia in egypt in britain he might have added rome which worshipped fever and mephitis it was everywhere the most sceptical wits who believed in nothing else believed in devils lucan and pliny the elder are just as vulnerable on this point as apuleius for the vulgar there was no other faith they sacrificed the apostle says to devils these facts do not alter our estimate of plutarch's own character but they are absolutely ruinous to his system with what effect could he denounce those vices which astarte claimed as her tribute 
when by the side of the holy gods he himself enthroned these spirits of darkness who must be placated lest they should do harm it was through this breach that the christian apologists stormed irresistibly in this part of plutarch's doctrine is interesting also in other aspects it shows us that gnosticism of which the characteristic feature is the belief in an evil creator was not so late in its appearance as is commonly supposed and this remark has an important bearing on the authenticity of certain of the letters of st paul it shows us again that hellenism could do nothing better with religious emotion than provide a sort of sink to carry it off the explanation of this fact goes down to the very root of the difference between hellenism and the gospel end of section five